You're listening to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. The term evidence-based decision-making, popular especially in the healthcare field, seems redundant. How else would one make a decision other than in accordance with the best available evidence? And yet, although this methodology has become standard in the healthcare and business worlds, the one sector that has been slowest to adopt evidence-based decision-making is also that sector which arguably has the greatest need for it, government. Ken Steiff is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Weizmann School of Design, where he leads the school's Urban Spatial Analytics Program, a unique program that teaches students how to apply data science and computer programming skills, specifically in the public sector context. Ken is interested in the ways in which local governments and agencies can use spatial data, that is, data which is tied to a physical geography, to better inform how to allocate public resources. Ken joined me to discuss why exactly governments have lagged behind the private sector in embracing evidence-based decision-making, and why he is optimistic that this will soon no longer be the case. Stay tuned. Season 3 of City Speak is sponsored by Batoni Architect. Batoni Architect is an award-winning design firm with a body of work ranging in building type and scale from interiors to master planning. Visit batoniarchitect.com to see their work. Ken Steiff, welcome to City Speak. Thank you, Max. Thanks for having me. You are a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I know that you were previously uh, affiliated with Temple. And am I correct, you are also a current resident of West Philly? That's right. I've lived in West Philadelphia for 20 years. Um, I got my undergraduate at, at Temple University, an amazing institution in North Philadelphia, where I studied geography and urban studies, a really important place to study those very critical topics, um, particularly nowadays, and um, came to Penn as a um, researcher and then got a master's degree and a PhD in, in city planning. The last two guests we had on City Speak, who also have strong ties to Philly, uh, Bruce Katz and Bill Witte are the two, both talk about their experience living in Philly as having a pretty strong impact on their current work on cities and in urban development. Do you feel the same way? Is, has that been influential in your day-to-day work? It absolutely has influenced and colored the work that I do today. I have grown up in cities my whole life, in New York City and in New Haven, Connecticut. Moved here when I was 17, moved to West Philly when I was 17. At that time, the neighborhood was very different. The neighborhood has gentrified dramatically since then. It still remains an incredibly important place for uh, progressives and for artists and for musicians, uh, for creativity. And I think living in and around uh, folks like that really influence the kind of creativity that I try to bring to my to my work. Let's talk a little bit about you, the program you started at Penn. It's called Masters in Urban Spatial Analytics. Talk to us about how that program came together and how you conceived of it. Yeah, I actually didn't um, start it. It was started um, 15 years ago, actually. Uh, by colleagues of mine across the university, uh, from School of Social Policy, from Wharton, the business school, and and from um, the city planning program, the program I'm in currently. 
And it was really at that time started as a GIS program. So in 2005, if you can just put some points on a map, the labor market was just wide open for you. Um, that is no longer an impressive feat. Uh, I took over the program about five years ago and really tried to maneuver the program in uh, away from points on a map, really towards data-driven decision-making or what colloquially we call data science and specifically data science in the um, government realm. So I'm, I'm a city planner, as I mentioned, by training. Um, and for reasons I'm sure we'll discuss, I uh, believe that um, data is an important planning tool. So in the MUSA program, we continue to um, have a big emphasis on spatial analysis. But I think what we do that's really important and unique is that we make data science accessible to social science students. And these are students who for um, you know, many years in, in, in middle school and maybe in college, their professors told them, their teachers told them, maybe you should stay away from STEM, you know, stick to the humanities, and many of our students kind of developed a complex about that and are just immediately anxious about writing code or doing statistics. Uh, and our strategy is the curriculum we developed is based on the idea that if I can get you super excited about um, solving a really complex public policy problem, then I can convince you to spend the time you know, banging your head against the wall trying to write this code or learn this, this algorithm. So we lead with the use case. And what we really do, I think, is empower these students um, to use their creativity to solve these really complex problems. We also give them the tools to really tell stories with data. So data visualization, the ability to communicate outside of a research paper. And we find that they are willing to work extraordinary hours uh, because what they produce is so meaningful. Let's now drill down a little bit on the nomenclature and terminology that you've been using, but also helped to actually craft. I know that you recently completed a book entitled Public Policy Analytics, Code and Context for Data Science in Government, in which you explore the ways in which governments have or often have not integrated data science into their decision-making and operations. So just to start, in rudimentary terms... What do you mean by public policy analytics? So public policy analytics is really my attempt to characterize data science as a critical tool for planning. Planning in government is really about the allocation of limited resources. It's about aligning the supply of and demand for some really critical services like transit, housing subsidies, child welfare, um, you know, environmental interventions, and just the list goes on, all the things that governments provide citizens. And to me, data science is about data-driven decision-making. It's about allocating those, those services using data and, and evidence. And the goal of the book is to advocate for combining these data science methods with government data sets. And these data sets are administrative data sets. They tend to be undervalued and underused. This is like every child who attends public school or every person who files city taxes. These data are the fuel of evidence-based public policy. And we want to combine these two things to help governments make better decisions and ultimately deliver critical services where and to whom they are needed most. Now, what's interesting about this approach, and the subtitle of the book is Code and Context for uh, Data-Driven Decision-Making. And the the context 
should really come first, honestly. When I talk to a government agency, I like don't lead with the fact that I'm a data scientist. I'm, I try to lead with the fact that I'm kind of a policy wonk. I really want to understand and empathize with the decision-making um, process of that agency. I want to try to identify the social and economic costs and benefits of their current you know, service delivery or resource allocation. And then I want to see if a data-driven approach can help. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is that you know, decision-making government is much more complex than just pulling together some data and making a recommendation. Uh, it really involves both code and context. One of the points you repeat time and again in the book is that this entire field is actually not by any stretch new. In fact, in the private sector, data analytics has been widely embraced and is very common practice by this point. How is public policy analytics distinct from what you see in the private sector? Yeah, so different. And I thank you for that question. Decision-making government is much more complex than in business because the bottom lines are much more complex and, and nuanced. And frankly, that complexity is what draws me to government problems. These are really not engineering solutions. Like if I ever worked for a tech company, I honestly, maybe this is a bit presumptuous, but I just feel like optimizing for revenue and for profit, that's kind of a layup. You know, uh, building solutions that uh, optimize for the bottom lines that are important to government is much more difficult. And there are economic bottom lines in government. They're really important, but so are other less quantifiable ideas like social cohesion and politics and bureaucracy Fairness, equity, I mean, the list goes on. You know, most of these things are not quantifiable at all, but now you're talking about solutions that have to trade off in all of those domains, and it's quite chaotic. And you can imagine, like, this is not something that an engineer can take on. And time and time again, we see in our society that when an engineer tries to take on one of these very nuanced civic problems, uh, they run into to, to trouble. And so in the book, I, I really spent a lot of time, particularly in the second half of the book, trying to show readers how to develop data-driven solutions. And I mean that quite literally, here's some code, here's some data, let's build these things. But then let's interpret the results we get um, in the context of balancing these many disparate bottom lines, trying to understand how to reconcile economic benefits with social costs. And that idea is at the heart of public policy analytics. In your book, you identify, I, I saw four primary ways that governments uh, have traditionally approached their decision-making. And that discussion uh, really fascinated me, so I'd like to highlight it now. Uh, the first, you say, is ad hoc decision-making, where government officials don't actually know why they do the things they do necessarily. The second is political, where decision-makers are mostly concerned with pleasing elected officials often to ensure that their budgets are secure. And the third is decision-making by institutional knowledge, where officials will simply say, it's always been done this way, so we're going to do it this way. The fourth, of course, the last, is the one you espouse. This is data-driven decision-making. What, in your opinion, has prevented this fourth approach from being widely embraced, and what obstacles remain in the future? Yeah, I mean, also just like let it be known that these are not issues in the private sector. You know, if we've been doing it the way we've been doing it and then someone comes along with a approach that is marginally better, that the bottom line increases, you know, only slightly, like that's the way we do things now because the incentives are, are as such. 
But that's not the case in government for a variety of reasons. And again, it's another reason why I love trying to build these solutions in government. Um, it's also worth mentioning that some governments are quite excellent at doing data-driven public policy. You know, probably some of my favorite examples come from Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia, my own city, Los Angeles, New York City, and, and a bunch of others, Chicago. Uh, I think really the list goes on. Some of them do things better than others. Those cities that are doing it well, many of them have figured out how to link or integrate data about individuals and families across different uh, agencies. So I can see these folks, how they interact with homeless services, how they interact with Medicaid and Medicare, uh, at the education system. So I can really get a full uh, glimpse into a child, into a young adult, into an adult, into a family over time. Uh, and that, I think, is the basis for the most cutting-edge evidence-based work that's happening in cities. But uh, it's, I say that because I think it's important to highlight best practice as much as possible. Um, but I think that there are several distinct reasons why evidence-based is difficult just in general. The first one, obviously, there's a significant deficit in human capital. And that's what we try to overcome in, in MUSA. We try to train students not to go in insurance and, and marketing and, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world to do data science, but to go and have a social good and uh, to go and work in governments. Increasingly, there are more and more programs that are focused on this training um, students to give them analytical skills to work in governments. But that's, that's the first big thing. The second important reason, I think, is that transparency and using data and evidence to be self-aware for an agency about their shortcomings in, in delivering services, that, that transparency may be difficult to stomach. And it may just be easier to uh, not shine the light on the work that an agency does. I think that plays a tremendous role. It really takes a really confident leader to say, we think we can do better. And we're going to use these data to highlight our shortcomings and to design better programs. Another reason I think is that we haven't done enough to convince taxpayers or agency leaders or political leaders that there's a real cost benefit in using evidence to make decisions. My feeling is always that evidence can have a marginal improvement in the delivery of services. So, you know, using data and evidence will not make a poorly designed programs suddenly work exceptionally well. It just, it's not gonna happen. But what it will do is it'll take a good program, it'll make it great. It'll uh, provide a, a noticeable, a meaningful value add. And I think we need to do a better job quantifying that value add and making that sale to taxpayers uh, and to stakeholders across all sectors. And finally, I think the last reason is, and this relates to the human capital issue, is that there's very little replication going on. And replication in, in science is uh, huge right now, but I, I think it, there's more to be done in, in government. So all governments collect the same data. They all have the same service delivery and resource allocation problems, right? Whether it's housing or economic development, transportation, you know, health and human services, you name it. They all have the same problems. They collect the same data. And what we really need is a platform for highlighting best practice. When one city uses data and evidence to achieve something great, they need to not only be able to communicate that in English words, but they need to be able to share their code to um, show other cities and other governments how they too can use their data to improve these this very same program in their jurisdiction. And this is at the heart of the uh, what we call the MUSA practicum, which is one of the capstone options that our students do uh, in their final semester. 
your listeners can Google Musa Practicum and see that this website shows a number of pretty novel all machine learning projects where students are paired with an actual government agency. Uh, they work with that agency's data to create some meaningful resource allocation you know, analytic using machine learning and data science. They build uh, interactive uh, maps and web-based dashboards. And finally, they put the code out. There's an entire appendix for each project where all the code that the students write um, is there. And what we're seeing is that other governments will come along with the same project and they'll copy and paste the code and hack it together to do something awesome in their community. So I think replication is a hugely important piece of this puzzle. And I think we'll get better collectively. Governments, particularly in this country, will get better at sharing these best practices in the future. Hearing about the Musa Practicum makes me curious to get a little more granular into a particular case study that you personally have worked on, um, just to illustrate some of the concepts we've been talking about. Uh, and the project I'd love to highlight is the one titled An Open Source Geospatial Risk Predictive Framework for Child Maltreatment. Can you tell us more about this amazing project and how it relates to the broader ideas behind public policy analytics? I suppose I should first mention that I, I kind of have two full-time jobs. One is as an educator um, at Penn, I'm what you call a professor of practice. So my job there is not to publish papers, but to practice this work. And the way I practice it is that I have this consultancy called Urban Spatial, where we work with clients mostly in the nonprofit and public sectors, uh, but also some in the private sector. It is a business that markets or sells really open source software, which for those entrepreneurs listening, like giving away your software for free is just not a good business model. To <laughs> take my word for it. But it's meaningful for me because it allows me to um, not only be an educator, but to really have an impact by putting um, these tools out there in the public sector for other governments to uh, make use of. And this project in child welfare that you make mention of is a great example of a project where we wrote the code and other communities, other governments have come along and taken that code and replicated it in their own community. I'm really proud of the fact that other um, communities are using our code to hopefully help improve the delivery of child welfare services. So I could talk about this project, but let me just first start by asking your listeners to consider the social costs of child maltreatment. Many people can identify with the horror that is child maltreatment. But what many don't know is that children who are abused, those scars follow them the rest of their lives and impact a whole host of socioeconomic and emotional uh, outcomes into adulthood. And that is a particularly good reason or incentive to have, have, to have governments try to use evidence and data to intervene early on um, before this abuse goes on to really haunt children into adulthood. And actually, this is one of the reasons why agencies interested in reducing child maltreatment or reducing uh, crime for that matter. These are early adopters in, in machine learning technology and government because of these social costs. The social costs of crime and child maltreatment are so high. And many of the use cases in government of reducing child maltreatment have focused on individuals trying to identify children 
at risk of maltreatment to do a better job in allocating limited social worker resources. In this project, we take a different approach. And I wanna mention this project was in collaboration with a really terrific nonprofit called Predict, Align, Prevent that is all about trying to identify place-based child maltreatment risk and intervene in a community setting. And so instead of focusing on individuals, we're focused on, on places. You can imagine that child maltreatment happens far more often than it is observed, which is to say that there's a much greater risk for maltreatment than what we actually observe. And you can think about that as like a point on a map, an address where maltreatment has happened here. What we try to do is to quantify what we call that latent risk, places where that risk for maltreatment exists, despite the fact that it hasn't been observed in the past. And we do so by creating some pretty complex geospatial machine learning analytics. But ultimately, I think what, what makes it particularly useful is that the end result of those complex analytics is just a simple measure of risk that can be mapped and that planners and low-level GIS analysts, they can take this one metric of risk, they can map it, and they can do a better job aligning the supply of child welfare resources where it is most in need, where there's most demand for that resource. And so if you go and look at this use case, it's not only machine learning analytics to predict this risk, but it's also what we call strategic planning analytics to align these community resources. Now, there's, there's so much to be said about the fairness. These are methods that come out of predictive policing. And in the book, there's a whole chapter on predictive policing and specifically why it is that predictive policing is not a good use case for government. This is spatial predictive policing. This is like how to allocate police in place. This, these are the same methods we use for predict child maltreatment, but there are certain outcomes that are not nearly as biased as police outcomes. You can imagine that an outcome like drug crime is immensely biased. There are certain communities that are over-policed for drugs, and therefore drug offenses are disproportionately reported and observed in these very same communities. And so algorithms that observe that outcome and that disproportionality, and then forecast risk for those outcomes, do so in those very same communities. And that creates a feedback effect where law enforcement then goes back and um, continues to report and observe more crimes in those communities. These same methods are really useful when you don't have that same kind of reporting bias. And we think that there's probably some reporting bias in, in child welfare, but not the same extent there is in, in policing. You touch on uh, some aspects that I kind of would love to close with my final question. You conclude your book with a chapter titled Algorithmic Governance, which is a term you use to describe the ideal end state of government decision-making that is driven by data and evidence. In that section, though, you also describe some of the natural concerns that arise when one tries to imagine a society governed by algorithms alone. So in closing, can you speak to those concerns and describe what you see as the proper version of algorithmic governance that governments should ideally strive toward? In a previous question, you asked me why evidence-based is not fully adopted in many cities. And I mentioned that at times, Certain governments may be adverse to the kind of transparency involved with, you know, shining a light on the shortcomings of their, their programs. 
their decision-making. These are governance questions. And without governance, it is difficult, if not impossible, to use technology in general and data in particular to have an impact. And these are, you know, the term governance is just relating to and of government, everything from bureaucracy to politics and, and decision making, all these things that we have been um, we have been talking about. A good way of sort of teeing this up is to provide an example from New York City of algorithmic governance or an attempted algorithmic governance. And this is really the saga of the New York City Algorithmic Decision-Making Task Force uh, that convened an amazing interdisciplinary group of lawyers and ethicists and data scientists and academics and nonprofits and practitioners all together to try to understand how it is that New York City was using data, New York City agencies were using data to make decisions. And the short story is they were really stonewalled by these agencies. They went to each agency and they said, please tell us what algorithms you are using. Uh, what are the inputs? What are the outputs? And the agencies just said, no. Wow. At the time when it was first sanctioned, this task force, it was just looked at it. It's just an immense best practice, but it turned out it really had very little political cover and ultimately failed. And so you can imagine this is an effort to sort of self-govern these algorithms to try to take them out of their black box context and to try to be more transparent about them. And so the question that I ask is, why was such an effort to really develop basic governance around these algorithms such a resounding failure? And the answer is, for all the reasons we've already discussed. And what I tried to do, really, I think I mentioned this at the onset, in combining traditional planning with data science, it provides a framework for doing governance it might be that governments are afraid of algorithms for a whole host of things, one of which might be a biased algorithm. But it also could be that they don't want to let anyone know that the program informed by that algorithm is just a poorly designed program. And algorithmic governance really starts with the idea that algorithms and programs are really one and the same, that a program delivers services. Someone is making a decision about the allocation of that service, and an algorithm is just an automated way of doing it. And so algorithmic governance tries to treat algorithms and programs in the same way. We want to design algorithms in the same way we design programs. And so it really starts with an evaluation of an existing program, uh, the business as usual, as I call it, process by which a service is delivered. We want to understand the efficacy of that program, really its costs and benefits. Those might, as I said, might be economic costs, but likely social costs and benefits as well. Um, we really want to engage, community engagement is a huge part of algorithmic governance. We want to engage communities on the program. And this is huge for these programs that have large social costs. So algorithms that inform law enforcement, algorithms that inform child welfare. Those are, the, those are examples of domains where people are really concerned and rightfully so that their data is going to be used for the purposes of surveillance. And so we want to be transparent with these communities. We want to say, you know, listen, we have these hugely negative externalities. We have homicides or we have children being abused. And we have these programs. These programs seem to be working or not to a certain extent. Uh, and so community engagement is a really important aspect of this. And then we want to draw up a proposal for using data to hopefully design better service delivery or a better program. And then 
go ahead and build that algorithm. And this next step, I think, is where academics can play a role. What we want to do is we want to ask if this new algorithmic approach can lead to better outcomes than the business as usual approach. So we might uh, do what's called a randomized control trial, a little experiment where we might say these children or these families or these neighborhoods, they'll have out resources allocated given the business as usual approach. But these groups over here, they'll get the algorithmic approach and this will provide a, a way of evaluating uh, the value add of our algorithm. And once we have that, we can then go back to the community to um, showcase these results. And one of the reasons I argue that algorithms have failed, at least politically, in governments is a lack of community standards. And so when you start bringing the community into the process, helping them identify with the problem, a social problem that governments try to solve, help them identify with how constrained they are with the current business as usual program, and then you take them along as, as a government tries to innovate uh, by bringing some data and some evidence into the equation, hopefully what you get is some community buy-in and an emergence of community standards. So you don't have governments or police departments procuring black box software, not telling elected officials or the communities that they're using these surveillance tools. And then all of a sudden it leaks and you have nonprofits and community groups and citizens who are outraged. You have police departments who say, we need these things. And you have politicians who are like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know anything about algorithms. No one told me you were procuring this software from this giant tech company. And so my, my belief in the, the framework of algorithmic governance is to treat algorithms as programs and design algorithms the same way you design programs. And the, the best approach for doing that is to get community buy-in through community engagement. Ken Stife, thanks so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and sound production by Greg Gordon Smith and Source Code Creative Media. And be sure to visit urbanized.city, now featuring the latest in commercial real estate news in Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Detroit, LA, and New York. Tune in again for our next episode. Ooh.